0: You're listening to Torah Classes
1: with Rabbi Mendy Goldberg. This class is a recording from a live class. Welcome to lesson number three. Today's lesson is called the Infinite Light. And so far we learned about the limitations as we're going through it in a moment, the world, Ya, Yah, And as we're getting more acclimated and acquainted with the different terminologies of the Kabbalistic, of the Jewish mystics, so we get to know what we're on about a little bit deeper into it. So today we're going to talk about another fascinating yet mysterious subject of angels. We know Jews don't pray to angels. There are those that angels that we ask to take our prayers on high in some cases, as we say in the prayers of Yom Kippur by Nehilah, Malachi Rachamim, the merciful angels that take our prayers on high. So we don't pray, pray to Almighty God. But yet there's an interesting statement or, fr- or prayer that we say every single day in our prayers, referring to the angels. And a quote from Isaiah where we say the word Kadosh, Kadosh, Kadosh. Holy, holy, holy. And we say it three times. And this is part of the prayers that's actually said before Shema. Then it's actually in part of the Kedusha, which is a holy part that we say during the repetition of the Amidah. Where does it come from? So the phrase comes actually from the book of Isaiah, who was is a prophet. And he experienced a certain prophecy, and in his vision, he, so to speak, retells what his experience was. And on text number one, page 74, let's see Isaiah's prophecy inside. Isaiah says a follows: Sraphim what Sraphimar we'll get to in a moment, stood above to serve him. Six wings. Six wings to each one. And one called the other and exclaimed, Holy, holy, holy is the God of hosts. The entire earth is full of his glory. What's going on up here? What's Isaiah saying here? What's Isaiah's vision all about? Why does he say holy three times? Who are these Rafim What's he he referring to? Do they have wings? What kind of wings are they talking about? I know that many people make the depiction of angels with wings, we'll see where it comes from. So what's Isaiah really referring to and what's this verse telling us here? In order to decipher what Isaiah is referring to, we have to go back to what we studied in the previous lessons. And we can have a better understanding of what Isaiah is telling us over here. What's the purpose of these prayers? Why they called sraphim? And what's the meaning of the wings? So what did we learn so far? So far we learned that there's bria, bria bria yitzira asiya, the spiritual states of existence. And each one is a level of independence. They are so-called worlds where people or creations can think independently. Then we went even to a higher level, which is called axilus, which we spoke about last week, which is an absolute level of manifestation of God in the way it is, in the highest form, but in the way God expresses himself in the spheres, We also learned that the spheres are not God itself, they're godliness. While they may be pshitus, the meaning that there's nothing to it, but they are still an expression of what God's about. Today we're going to go to a next level. Today we come to the next level, which is what we call, beyond the spheros, a pre-sphero, that means a pre-expression of God, what we would call the orings the infinite light. So we're climbing up the ladder. So we started off on the bottom, the physical, I see the physical world. In the first class we spoke about the, the, from the physical, the more spiritual it gets. Last week we spoke about the divine of Atsilos. Now we're going to get to the pre-Atsilos. What does this mean? What is this or ein sof? As we talk about our Kabbalic vocabulary, so we talk about the worlds, one of the very common phrases that are used in Kabbalah is this terminology or ein sof literally translated the infinite light. Let's see it in text number two from Reb Chaim the student of the Arizal, who says as follows. Before Atzilot was emanated and before the creations were created, a simple divine light filled all of reality. It had no aspect of beginning or end. It's called ur Sof, infinite light. Now, why do the Kabbalists like the terminology light? What is so good about light? Why do we use this terminology of light? Because light, number one concept of light, if I have light, what does that mean? there must be somebody making that light. Light doesn't happen in its own. There has to be an illuminator. There has to be something making the light happen. But at the same time, is light the essence of the item? Not at all. So when I look at light, number one is, there is no light without an illuminator.
0: Mm.
1: It's a reflection from the illuminator, but it can't be without the illuminator. Number two, an item about light. While light is constantly observed and connected to its source. Take, for example, another terminology which is used. Shefa, flow. What is usually referred to a flow? Like rain. Once the clouds dissipate, do I still have the rain? I have the rain, it's still by me. I can still hold it. I can still collect it. Once the sun moves away at night, I no longer have the light. Now, it reminds me of the story of (laughs) Chelm. In Chelm, they they had a problem finding having a moon to make the blessing of the sanctification of the moon. You ever heard about the city of Chelm, right? The city of Chelm was full of geniuses there. So there was a problem in the winter that there was no moon. So they decided that in the summer months, they're going to preserve the moon so they can use it for the winter. What did they do? They had a genius idea. They took a barrel of water... They had the moon reflect into the Bible water, closed the lid, and like this, they preserved the moon. <laughs> right. Light, by definition, when there's no light, when there's no sun, there's no light. You can't preserve the light. You can't see the light as a separate entity. And therefore, when the Kabbalists want to use the terminology of an infinite light which comes into this world, or to create, when it's going to use a terminology of or and stuff is because light has an, at least two concepts. Number one, There's no light without an illuminator. And number two, it's inseparable of its source. So everything in God's infinite light is created within this world. Another common term that I'm sure you've heard before that we've used in different ways is something called Sovite Colomna. This is over here. If you look in another quote from the Zohar, the Zohar uses this terminology many times. And the Zohar says as follows. There are two ways how God corresponds with this world, how the infinite light comes into the world. Number one, he encompasses all worlds. And number two, he fills all worlds. Mm-hmm. What's the difference between filling and encompassing? And the Zohar and the Kabbalistic explanations explain that the difference between kalam, which means filling all worlds, and kalam, encompassing the worlds. Is take for example what we discussed the past two weeks—the creations of Bria, Yitzira, Asiya—the very fact that every world has a limited, or if you want to call it, or has a certain dynamic, has a certain way of expressing itself—that's God's infinite life filling each world with what it needs, encompassing in each world. Will tell us even more so. That means, mamalik gives me the ability of noticing the beauty around us, searching for meaning, and gives us the leaves as we're soon going to see about what God's all about. While Soviv Kalalman is God as he transcends creation. Take it this way. We understand that there's mamalik Kalalman, how God fills the world, each one, so each one of these spheres, gets Chesed, Vura, each one gets according to what it needs. And some have conduits all over. It's exactly the same, with a matter of light, infinite light. And that's what we're going to discuss today, how that happens. So now that we have a little bit of an introduction to some of these terms, let's go back to Isaiah's quote of Kadosh, 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 the vision that Isaiah has. Kabbalah explains that when we talk about these worlds of Bria, Yetzirah, Asiyah, where do angels fit in? Where do angels come in? Angels come in in the world of creation because they're also creations of God. That means they're in the world of real. They're in the highest level of creation, but they're still a creation.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That means they are godly creations. They are spiritual, they're all spiritual, but they are in the world of a creation. They're very close in their attachment to God, but they're independent creatures because they are given independent missions. Mm-hmm. So that's the level of an angel. So they are in the form, if you want to call it, in the level of Bria. These angels are called sraffim. Sraffim literally means burning beings. What does it mean burning? Because they have a burning desire to connect to God.
0: Hmm.
1: And you may ask the obvious question. One second, why do they have a burning desire to connect to God if they're in the level of Bria, in such a high level that they're spiritual beings already? Hmm. What is their desire if they have it already? usually you want something that you don't have so we're calling them Srafim because they have this constant yearning and desire to be connected to god aren't they already connected to god so let's see what it says in the next text from the first chabad reben it says as follows text number four page 78 the lofty angels of rea are called Srafim from the word to burn Due to their flaming passion to gaze at the king's glory at Sov of Kalam, the state of godliness that encompasses all the words, which is separate and transcendent. Kadosh, the word Kadosh doesn't only mean holy, but it means separate, above. Mm-hmm. This is why we proclaim kadosh, why we say holy. What does this mean? These Srafin, their unique quality is they're from the level of Bria, the level of creation. They experience a fiery passion that they want to connect to God. What level of God? The one that transcends the limitation that they're in. That means, as we mentioned, God fills each world with what it needs. He fills the light. There's a level of the Malakalum, where Bria gets what it wants, the angels get what it needs, and so to speak. But then there's an infinite light that encompasses all the worlds, which is even higher than that. That's where the angels want to connect to. Mm-hmm. Let's go back to the parable that we gave last week. The scientist walks into a class of teenagers and tells them only a small tidbit of his great philosophy. There's a student in the class who has this brilliant mind and catches on to the theory. What does the student say? I want more. I want to know what's the whole theory. I don't want just this tidbit. He got a taste of it, but he knows there's more where it comes from. The him even though they understand and appreciate spirituality, but they realize they only got a limited, concise ability to appreciate that level of spirituality. And because of that, they have a desire to be able to have more. Take, for example, you see an artist, any artist. You see his drawings, you're fascinated by it. I always wondered about, in general, celebrities. People like to know about the personal lives of celebrities. Why? Why do they have the fascination with it? What do you care? It's because people want to have, so to speak, a relationship. And how do you have a relationship with somebody that you know you're never going to have a relationship with? It's to know everything about their dog. Every detail. But even though you know every detail, there's nothing like actually meeting the person and getting that selfie. Even though the person's going to walk out right after this. The angels can know everything about God means, but they're not there. They haven't gotten the selfie with the celebrity. <laughs> they haven't gotten that at level, they're still having that desire. <laughs> so even though they know everything about the about it, they still haven't had it. And this is where the Srafim begin their exploration of God as the creator and the emanator. And they soon realize that with their level of interaction is only secondary. Because the highest level is an Atsilos. Or even in dar and Sof, in the infinite light. And therefore, they're not satisfied the way they relate to God in the level of Bria. They want to have that level of Sobeth Kalam, in the infinite light, in the way it encompasses all the world. This is the reason. As we use the terminology wings, what does wings tell us? So, the fourth Chabad Rebbe says as follows. Text number five. say Kadosh. Because they comprehend God's transcendence. That's why they have six wings. They are in constant state of rising upward. That's the reason, if you notice, when we say it during the Amidah, when we say the word Kadosh, it's customary that we lift ourselves, we lift our front toes three times while saying it. Because the word Kadosh doesn't only mean holy, but it means separate. Developing some type of longing and interest and desire to reach higher than where I am. This is what the angels want. They have those wings because they're not satisfied. What's the concept of wings? I don't just want to walk. I want to soar to a higher place. Not just stay where I am stagnant. Not necessarily can the angels do it, but that's their desire. So too, when the Jew says the prophecy that Isaiah was experiencing, what he's doing is, so to speak, trying to bring into reality the desire to be able to reach higher. What does this tell us? Now that we appreciate what the history of this passage is, we can understand why we say it also in our daily prayer. What do I care about the angel's desires? Why do I have to mention in my prayer before I say Shema or during the Amidah about what the angels do? It's because it has something to do with in our daily life. Because most of us, how's our relationship with God? Why do we want to have a relationship with God? It's because we look at the beautiful universe and in vast complexities, and we've come to a conclusion that there must be a creator who made all these things. That's one reason why people have a relationship and want that relationship with God. Another reason why people have a relationship with God is also because they see that maybe they feel some void in their life. They're looking for meaning and purpose, and God fills that void. And, but in both of these cases, what's the common denominator? How are they seeing God? Through their own limited understanding, through their purview, they're seeing God because I have a need. Whether it's because I see the creation and therefore I have to say somebody created all this, and I'm fascinated by it, or I'm looking to be able to create a deep relationship. But my entry point is it starts with how does God have a role in my life? That what would we call mamalikalama? fills the need, the void, for that unique individual. But what about seeing God as the creator? What about seeing God even a higher level, appreciating God for what he is? God, not necessarily because he relates to me, but because he's beyond me, beyond my intelligence, beyond my logic, beyond the a level which necessarily fills a need. That's already so biblical. This is what we talk about when we talk about praying. When we pray, what are we doing? I'm not only talking about a void that I need. Three times a day, I have the Amida. That's where we say the Kedusha. We put our feet together and we speak to God. Not because of what I need, but because of who God is. That's the level of soul an all-encompassing God. Mm-hmm. And therefore, I can ask all types of things. I can mention all types of things. I can aspire to be the highest level. Because it's not necessarily what I need, but it's because I identify God, because God is the great the creator of the universe. Because he's the infinite light. Because he's the all-encompassing God. The one beyond logic. And it makes us consciously aware that there's an infinite light. There's a godly spirit within every single part of creation. The one I understand and the one I even don't understand. Think about it in a relationship between a husband and wife. We can do things in a marriage because, okay, I get a perk because of it. There's a benefit because of it. But that's not what a relationship is all about. A relationship is not only where we see benefit, but because there's a benefit in the actual relationship of being together with that person. Mm-hmm. The relationship that we have with God and our souls want with God, and that's why the soul has this constant desire to climb higher in the soul, is even greater than an angel because the soul can actually get higher. While the soul can extend and reach to higher, greater heights, and therefore the relationship implies to a level where God wants to and accepts everything about us, and similarly, as long as we make that effort to, so to speak, see God the way he is, not for what he gives us, but for the way God is in his essence, then we can have that level of relationship. What's the first step? How do you have a relationship with anything or anybody? It's to study study about that, to learn about it. So when we learn about or in stuff, to know that even such an infinite light exists beyond the level of relationship, beyond the level of spherot, beyond the level of diffusion. This is what helps us create that relationship. That's precisely one of the reasons why we study about these Kabbalistic ideas and these mystical spherot, is to enhance that relationship, one beyond logic, with God. Another additional feature of the point that we have with having this relationship to God's infinity, if you look in text on page 80, there's the 13 attributes of mercy. We're not going to go through it, but the 13 attributes of mercy, just to give you a little history of how it came about. After the great debacle of the sin of the golden calf, the Jewish people were in an ultimate low. Just 40 days prior, God gave them the commandment. They could barely hold on to it for a month and 10 10 days. And all of a sudden they're already sitting with the golden calf. Moshe has to beg of Almighty God to accept the mercy of to accept the repentance of the Jewish people. <coughs> and God at first doesn't acknowledge it and doesn't want it until He invokes the thirteen attributes of mercy. These thirteen attributes of mercy was given to Moses on Mount Sinai as an opportunity or as an ability that to be able to reach God on a level, so to speak, beyond any type of capacity, meaning in the way God is in the infinite light. Because the way God had a relationship with the Jewish people that he was upset about and why he wanted to get rid of them and what the sin of the golden calf is, memaliklam, filling a void. That means in a certain level, I made a law, you broke the law. But the way God is in the all-encompassing life, in the transcendent life, sins don't matter there. And therefore, when invoking these 13 attributes of mercy, and you can see there's a different concept of it, this reaches a level which is the transcendent light. And that's why the 13 attributes of mercy, if you notice on Yom Kippur, are mentioned many times, because again, it's invoking that level of mercy Mm -hmm. that we have through the 13 attributes of mercy. Talking about things that are mentioned in the prayer, and especially in the Amida, there's another prayer that we sing in the Amida. And actually, the last part of the Amida, a very famous song. I'm sure you all know this verse, a very, very famous line in our liturgy. Which is, O Shalom in Ya Shalom, probably very appropriate for today's day and age as well. The one who makes peace in heaven should make peace amongst us as well. The first three words of that verse, of that prayer, it's from the book of Job, just for the record. Hmm. The rest of it is part of the prayers. But just look at the words for a moment. He who makes peace in heavens. Why? Is there fights in heavens? God not not getting along with somebody? (laughs) What's happening there? What does it mean, he who makes peace in heaven? What other issues, what's going on over there that he has to make peace, that because of that, we're saying the one who makes peace in heaven should make peace down here. So as we learned, there are different Svirot. And if you look by the Svirot, there are 32 connections. If you look at the picture of the Svirot that you have, you'll see connecting each one of these spherot, there are 20 things, sorry, 22 different connections, 22 symbolic of the 22 letters of the alphabet, but there are 22 letters of connections that you have. That means even though all these spherots are separate chan- separate channels, and therefore, and they all run in different lines, and we're soon going to talk about the center, the middle of the, we're talking about the middle line, like you have kether, da, tiferet eti, so, and then you have different ones, but at some point they also interact with one another. And in Kabbalah this is called incorporation, mm. intermingling. That they're able to get along, so to speak, synthesize with one another. Where does this happen? And especially it shouldn't have been taken for granted because even in Axilus, where we talk about different spheros, each one is independent. Each... Attribute, each idea is something unique. And the very fact that each one has its uniqueness, but it's able to, so to speak, crisscross with another. Why is that? And over here, Rabbi Schneer's Alman gives an interesting analogy. And I'll tell you the analogy outside, which is as follows. Imagine you have ministers in front of the king, each one has another job. One guy is a defense minister. The other guy is the interior minister. The other person, each one has their job. And each one has his job with his executives and his assistants and everything else. Not only does each one have his job, but sometimes the jobs that they have can be not necessarily working with the other person properly. That there's a certain animosity towards that person. Maybe there's more money going to defense that should be going to interior or going to uh, finance. It should be going to uh, agriculture, whatever it may be. But when they, all those ministers come in front of the king, what's their sole purpose? Their sole purpose is to serve what the king wants. Their actual portfolio of what they have no longer exists. doesn't make a difference. Standing in front of the king, you can be defense, agriculture, it doesn't matter. You are a minister of the king. You serve the king's items. You're here for his majesty. The same thing the alt rebbe explains when we talk about the zeroes each sphere embraces its own definition chesed is completely generous Gevurah is the opposite
0: mm.
1: but when they stand in front of the king the way they are in the level of Ain so in the infinite light it transcends any type of level that you may have any type of attitude or attribute or special significance that you have because in front of the throne they are all the same And that's why they have a collaboration. Why does the, ultimately, does the agriculture and the defense and the interior have to work together? Why can they keep on fighting with each other? Because they have all one goal in mind. That one goal transcends any of their differences. Mm -hmm. That makes an inclusion. The moment there's a type of somebody wants to make a coup or somebody doesn't work together, then you're not fulfilling the purpose. Then there's no reason for you to be a minister. You're not doing your job even though I have a completely different avenue, a way of looking at it, but ultimately we have to do the job together. Who enables that collaboration is the concept that there's a king on top. Take it even a step further. The very fact that there's a certain level within the king, if you look at the king itself, in the king, do you see a minister of agriculture? Do you see a minister of defense, a minister of whatever it may be? And the king itself, you don't see it. The king is simple, he's above, he's beyond. You don't see any complication there. You don't see those different channels. Because you don't see in the king those different channels, that's why he enables all of them. Because if the king was expressed himself in only one type of way, if he was a big defense guy, then, look you know the interior doesn't want to deal with it. Then he's not solid, he's not equal, he's not an equalizer, for that matter. Am I coming across clearly? Absolutely. the concept over here is that we see the same thing as also when it comes to God there's a level of God's infinity when we talk about and Kabbalah calls it Keter there are 10 spheros the highest level is Keter which means the crown the crown is the king is the level of itself. the predominant overarching transcendent light which in that level it's all inclusive and for that reason, you will notice that there are many times in the Kabbalistic graph when you look at the 10 spheres, in some of them, Kessar is included in one of the 10 spheres, but in many of them, it's the one right on top. But where is it? It's in the center line.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: In that center line where you see Kessar, the level of 8 sof, that's where you have that transcendent light. The Kabbalist explain, as you go down the line, you have a level of seferis, which is harmony. What is the literal translation of the which means beauty? Mm -hmm. Like we explained, we have which may be an extreme generosity. You have which is an extreme discipline. But then you have the beautiful harmony is a synthesis of the two coming together. How do they come together? Because it's in the same line of The king has that ability to take all the extremes, all the different particles, and bring it into this beautiful canvas to adjudicate and to be able to bring about what needs to be done. For that reason, keser is a synonym of, or in self, of the infinite light. Because in reality, what is it doing? It's reflecting into the spheres that transcendent light. From keser, it, deflo- it flows into Tiferus, into the beauty. That the only way Tiferous has that ability to bring the two extremes together, because it's in the line of keser. And it has that power of collaboration of bringing the two together. So while there may be many different factions of attributes of God's way of filling this world, there are also syntheses of bringing them together. So when we talk about back to what we started before, Shalom what's the peace that God has to make above, is the two different factions of whether it's an enormity of generosity, an enormity of discipline, bringing them together under the crown of keser, the crown, brings them together in front of the king, all of these are able to intermingle. This dynamic plays out in our lives and the institution of marriage as well. If you look about marriage, it has two dimensions. Marriage has a concept of, there's a physical bond, there's an observable body base that they're able to do, two people coming together, husband and wife, with different types of attitudes, different types of backgrounds, whatever it may be. And then there's also an unobservable, the soul bond between the two of them. If two, what happens if two people, their souls are rooted in two different spheres? One comes from a chesed, one comes from a gvura, whatever it may be. How do they merge together? How do they come as two soulmates? I can understand that two people can get along, right? Because we explained in our first class we have garments of our soul that we can put on and we can take off. So I can speak nicely, I can behave nicely, I can even think nicely about the other person. But if the concept of a marriage is a soulmate, and our souls come from different places, how do we then get connected? How do we merge as one? Because the purpose of marriage is that we merge as one, that we come together as one. So our question then is, how do two souls become into one soul if those souls are coming from completely different dynamics? The question even comes even more so, if you recall last week and the week before we spoke according to Kabbalah, the whole idea of male giving and the female receiving is because Kabbalistically and the way our makeup of our souls are above is that the male comes from one type of soul and the female comes from another type of soul. The male is the dominant giver while the female is the dominant receiver in the type of souls that we talk about whether it's generosity, discipline, wisdom, understanding, whatever level of spirit you're going to take it from, which just only adds seemingly to the impossibility of these two souls actually merging as one. What do we do about that? What's the marriage going to do? Rabbi Schneir Zalman explains, the first Chabad Rebbe says it as follows, and he says here's the solution. The bride and groom, text number 8, page 85. The bride and groom are opposites. To unite as one they require an effusion of a higher energy that shines from a degree of divinity that transcends their differences. This is the significance of leading the bride and groom to a chuppah that hovers above both of them equally and is positioned at the height above them. It corresponds to the encompassing light of the soul of Kalam. For a soul fusion to take shape, each soul has to be able to have its root essence of where it comes from. But then there's something that transcends the both. The characteristics that all of them, no matter what soul you come from, it's able to fuse them and to make them as one. And that's the transcendent light. For that reason, think about it. When did it go into the chutta? Before they're married or after they're married? Jewish law today we see you bring them into the chutta, and only afterwards does the man put the ring onto the wife. Seemingly, it should happen first, you should put on the ring. This is a woman you're taking, and then bring her into the chuppah. Because the chuppah itself symbolizes that transcendent light that brings the two together. Fascinating thing, you'll notice that almost everything in a wedding, in a Jewish ceremony, is all circles. Look at page 86. Number one, the chuppah. You have that outside canopy that encompasses the bride and groom number two what happens after what happens actually before you bring them under the chuppah the groom escorted the chuppah and he covers the bride with a veil the bride remains veiled during the entire time of the ceremony because it's not limited to the way she looks or what she is it's an all encompassing remaining light i'm not looking at your a specific feature it's the idea that we come together as two souls as one under the chuppah the first thing the bride does she circles the groom seven times. Seven spirals, the seven emotions, becoming that transcendent level. What kind of ring does the bride, does the groom give to the ring? A circle as well. Now it's his turn to circle the bride by giving that ring of a circle again and saying, with that ring, I hereby marry you according to the law of Moses and Israel. would have been nice if, during my ceremony, the rabbi or the... Uh Uh, Somebody said, by the way, here's the representation. Okay. That would have been nice meditation. (laughs) Well, that's why you're learning it now. (laughs) Then when you come come to the actual party, how do most people traditionally dance? (laughs) In a circle. circle. What's in a circle? There's no beginning, there's no end. Again, a transcendent light that encompasses all. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: But what you see over here, the concept of a Jewish wedding, the marriage circles that exist, is because you're bringing the Jewish light, you're bringing the transcendent light, which takes these two opposites because they are opposites. Yes, they are opposites, and bringing them together. Just uh, sorry to interrupt. Kesar is central. That's what's pulling everything. Correct. Okay, just one That's one. the chupa, which is the crown, which is holding them together. Really good. Excellent. Let's take it even a step further. Where do we observe? Or let's take it even look at it from this way. Who is the only creation that has the ability to make infinite? What's the only creation that God made that can create something of infinite? Let's take, for example, if I want to make an object, pick your object over here, they like a flute. What happens once the flute becomes rusty, unusable? You take it, you throw it into the garbage. There's nothing worth it. What happens with a human being? What do they do? The human being gets married, they make a creation. They create something. I created a flute I create a child. What's the difference between? Them? What happens when the child gets older, gets a little, thinks that it knows more than the parents, gets teenagers rambunctious, you finally marry them off, and what do they do? They create another child. Infinite. And then that child gets married and creates another child. The one pe- the one person. The one ability to create something infinite is the human being by its creation because God gave it the power of infinite. For that reason as well, human beings on their own can't have children. There are three partners in every child. God, Mm -hmm. the human being, the father father and the mother. The two opposite souls Mm -hmm. coming together, a transcendent light bringing them together to create that infinite light. The fascinating part of it is as well, what other things create infinite? Vegetation. Where does vegetation get the ability to grow? This is another whole separate capitalistic discourse. Vegetation only can grow if it has soil. Once that vegetation grows, you tank that seedling. That seedling cannot grow unless it goes back into the soil. Okay? Follow this this trend here. Once that seedling grows, you tank again that seedling, but where always it has to end up to get someplace? Back into the soil. What else gives birth? Animals. Mm-hmm. How do animal survive? From anything that grows, from vegetation, which comes from the soil. The human being, what's the first human being called? Adam. What is he called? From soil. Mm. Soil, in level of, if you want to call of the what of the food of the levels of creations, looks like the lowest inamite aperture. But within it is the greatest powers. The lower something is seemingly has the highest qualification of the infinite life, which is all-encompassing. It looks like on the outside, on the observable part of it, doesn't look that great. What is soil? But if you look a little deeper, the power of infinite is within the soil. That's a whole separate subject we won't get into today. Now, now that I know this, this whole methodology, what happens when there's a conflict in a marriage? What happens when there's a conflict or in a case where there's a, something where there's somebody not getting along? Why are they not getting along? It's because usually different personalities, different expressions of their garments of their soul. But what happens when we embrace our differences? When we recognize that there's something greater? Allow your conscious mind to see that there's something transcendent, something there's a broader picture. It's not just about my feelings of my expressions of the garments of my soul. I go into the deeper conscious of where my soul is essentially from, that there is a bond. There's a connection. And all of a sudden, each side becomes less chauvinistic about the other, less particular about what's going on, because it's not, this is just expressions. We look deeper into who we essentially are, where our soul comes from. And then there is a level of collaboration collusion, cohesion, that you can come together. There's a fusion that's there. Mm -hmm. When we look at ourselves as independent beings, then of course we're gonna have a lot of discrepancies, a lot of differences. I got my department, you got your department. But if we look at that we're connected, there's a transcendent light hovering over us. There's that circle. There's that you that goes around from all over. You have that ability to be able to see and come and connect and have that cohesive ability. This is the phrase that we say. Oseh Shalom in Roma. the deeper meaning of Oseh Shalom tells us as follows it's a request of Almighty God. He who makes peace in heaven. what does it mean he makes peace in heaven He knows that there are different dynamics. there are souls that come from the right that come from the left but he, he fuses them together. He then allow us to make peace amongst ourselves as well. He allows for peace to be in heaven. Just like there's a transcendent light, the aura and sub generates peace above, we can also allow that peace, that level of the transcendent life to come into all our lives. And that's, and that's when we say the Imru Amen. To that you could say Amen. To say Amen, that I should allow that transcendent life that God has up there to bring it into my life. So now that we learned about the transcendent light, how it works up there, it's now time that we look at the mirror effect of it in our the soul of Colum, the transcendent light and how it works in the human. We are the aim self in our own human souls, because we mentioned in every class we're a mirror reflection of what's happening upstairs is happening into our life. Mm-hmm. So we spoke about in our class so far. Thus far, we have discussed the action of speech thought, which is the soul garments. The emotions is the implementation, the 10th spirit of Bria Yisir Asiyah. And we spoke about Atsilot being the independent one. The 10th soul powers, which can be divided into emotions, intellectual. And today we're going to climb a little deeper into our soul and see how close it is to the core. If one were to tell you that there's something beyond intellect, you say, what? What do you mean it's beyond intellect? Intellect is the most abstract or spiritual thing that you can mention. But with God making his first appearance, so to speak, in Asylos, of an expression in Spheros, we know that there's something more than the intellect. There's a certain drive which is within the human being. What's that drive within the human being? God?" emanates a transcendent light to the level of Atsilus, which gives us the ten spirit, which gives us then Bria, Yitzhira, until we actually come to this physical world. But where does that all start from? Where is that in the human being? Where is that in the soul of the individual? What gives it the power to have the koiches, the power of the nefesh? Rabbi Schneir Zalman says as follows, text number nine, page 88. The soul itself is simple. Undefined light that transcends the division of intellect and emotion. That means within the soul it's beyond intellect and beyond emotion. Where is that? How does that happen in the human soul? Where in human life do you have something that's beyond intellect and beyond emotion? Is that what human beings are all about? Our emotions and our intellect, and we split them up. <clears throat> some control others, better, some out for worse. But Hasidism explains. That there's a deeper dimension in the soul, which is called Ratzon, desire, the drive, the will. And the fascinating part about it is in Hebrew, as we know, every word, you know, they're all interchangeable. The Hebrew word for desire, for will, is Ratzon. When you will and desire. Sinor, which means a conduit, a pipe made up of the same letters, just backwards. Mm. Which means the idea that the human being has the ability to convey and express itself, whether through intellect, whether through emotion, has to come from a drive. There has to be a desire. Your wanting to do something is your pipeline for ultimately doing it. Let's see it inside. Text number 10. The Hebrew letters, page 89. The Hebrew letters that spell ruts on desire also spell tsinar, pipeline. Just as a pipeline employed to channel something, so does the human will channel the soul towards a particular matter. Let's take it a step deeper. And over here, the fifth Chabad Rebbe, I'm sorry, the second Chabad Rebbe, is going to explain there are two types of desires. Because you can say, what, desire of the chocolate cake? How does that drive me to do anything other than a chocolate cake? And over here he's going to say there's two types of drives, desires that a person has. And as we're going to go on, we'll see how they're interrelated with one another. Text number 11, page 91. From the words of the second Chabad Rebbe, Rebdod One type of human desire is a referred to as a born desire because it is brought into being at a particular time. It is also referred to as a lower desire because its position is beneath that of the intellect. Such a desire takes shape only after we strongly contemplate on a particular matter. Without this, we will not experience my desire towards that matter. By contrast, when we think deeply about it, whether it's a specific food or item or clothing, financial issue, lucrative business deal, then a desire for that thing is born with us. This type of desire is also called a nida, an emotion, which means measure or limit For a desire born from intellectual knowledge and contemplation and measured desire limited to the specific rationalization created by it. Consequently, when the logic basis for that desire ceases to become irrelevant, the desire towards that matter will simply dissipate. There is, however, a second type of desire, referred to as a higher desire. The desire is limitless. It is a simple desire that transcends intellect and that is not born from it. Instead, it's a natural desire that relates to our very selves. For example, the father's love of his offspring they are an extension of his essence, a mother's compassion for a child that she bore. These are natural desires that transcend reason and nature. There are many different types of desires that we have. You know, you have a person who is educated. He took financial, um, you know, uh, financial, uh, had to strategize in the market. And therefore, they're able to look at the market. And they come with complex different charts. And they make these intellectual type of philosophical judgments of when they should invest. But all those are only good, and therefore, they go and invest millions of dollars. But the moment they see a flip in the market which doesn't align with their philosophy, with their intellectual level, they no longer have an interest in that stock as great as they wanted it in total. And they sell it all. Why? Because that desire was only created based on their knowledge Based, that desire came after a logical explanation. But then there's a desire which is innate. A desire which is innate is like a de- child to a parent. The child can mess up once, and the parent still loves them, a second time and a third time. Why? Because it's not based on logic. A desire that's not based on logic has in it many different parts of it. An innate desire is, number one, beyond intellect. You can't explain it. Why I like that thing. Why I have a drive to it. Why I have a desire. I can't explain it. It's beyond logic. You can tell me a hundred reasons I shouldn't, but I'm still going to be interested. Number two, it it rationalizes. It will give me a hundred excuses of why I should want it. It creates intellect. Number three, it's constant. There's no ups and downs. When I have something that I like because my logic tells me, as long as my logic is burning, I'm gung-ho about it. Mm-hmm. But as soon as somebody starts telling me he starts swaying, it's not constant. I'm not thinking about it all the time. Even more so. It's like infinity. there's unlimited strength where it comes from. It just keeps on going. There's no stopping it. Mm-hmm. That innate desire automatically, not only does it shape the mind, not only does it make the intellect follow it, but it engages everything around it. And when thinking about it automatically, it transcends over any rule or any discussion or anything that would happen. And it makes you feel the person like is infinite. There's, no, it, there's just more of it coming. And it keeps on pushing you and rolling you. Why is it? Because it's innate. It's within the individual. There's a desire that wasn't created. It's part of who you are. When we talk about the second desire, this is what we call the higher desire. But we'll get to that in a moment. On the other hand, when you have a desire which you logically explain, why do I buy a certain material for my clothing? Because I, this looks good on me. It lasts a long time. It's a good investment. Why do I buy a particular house? Not because I have an innate desire for that house. I like where it looks, I like the neighborhood, I like the school district, there's a bunch of different things. So the moment mm. one of those things fall, that desire is over. Mm. And because of that, it's always subject to change. The moment I get new information, it's subject to change. But it's still called a desire. Why is it still called a desire? Why are both of these called Ratsong? They both drives. I have a drive which is a logical drive. A born drive and a drive which is a which is a drive. Is it because Hebrew doesn't have enough words to go around? <laughs> and this is because they're both intermingled. By the following story, the Talmud tells us. The Talmud tells us, text number twelve. Rabbi Shimon and his colleague Levi were studying Torah portion with Shimon's father, Rabbi Judah Nasi, when they completed it. Levi suggested, "Let us bring Proverbs to study." Where Rabbi Shimon suggested. Let them bring Psalms to study. Rabbi Shimon prevailed upon the lay to acquiesce, and they brought the book of Psalms. When they reached the passage, praises the person who desires and, the God, and is in God's Torah, of Yud explained, you can only learn Torah from the place that your heart desires. At this point, Levi declared, my teacher, you have given me permission to leave. What was he saying here? Imagine you have two people to walk into a classroom. One's a brilliant scholar, but has zero interest in being there. One has wants to be there, but he's, let's not call him brilliant for today. Which one is going to walk out studying better? Which one's going to know the stuff that they studied in the classroom better? Not necessarily the brilliant scholar, because he has no interest in being there. Yeah. Maybe the person with the lower, not maybe, the person with the lower level of intelligence is definitely going to be, know the stuff better. Why? Because he wants to be there. Yeah. Now, why does he want to be there? could be for a logical reason. But because he created the logic that he wants to be there, he is going to be passionate about what he's doing, about what he's learning, and he'll know the stuff better. For that reason, our sages tell us, if you look in text number 13, desire, rutzing, compels all of a person's ability to be drawn after. Therefore, our sages taught us that we should study Torah specifically in a subject that we desire. For then our minds become more creative and analytical regarding the subjects of our desire. Indeed, we can readily observe that those who study with desire comprehend the subject better intellectually gifted individuals than those who study with a similar desire. For the roughen forces the intellect to operate on a higher level. Indeed, it has the same amplifying effect on all individuals' abilities. It's fascinating things in different workplaces now. I think Google was the first one to do it, that they have different environments of where they allow their people to work, especially their creative partners. Some people want to stand, some people want to sit, you want to lie on a couch, you want to hang on a swing upside down. The reason is because when people are comfortable and they're not forced into a box, for whatever reason, you automatically, when you're forced into a box, you think only in the box. When you're allowed to express yourself and you're able to have that liberty, you also think out of the box because you want to be there. I chose where my office should be. I chose how I should be able to present my work. I have the ability to be able to expand my desire. It's my choice that's putting me here, not somebody compelling me to be here. Automatically, I, I have them more interested in doing it. Now, all of a sudden, we can see something very fascinating here. Both of them are called ratzom. They're both called will and desire. Why? Because they both become now intertwined and interconnected. The desire drives the logic. Remember? That was the first way. I have an innate desire to do something, therefore I'm going to make a logic that should have it. But at the same time, there's also I have the logic, I made up this big financial advisor, therefore I have the desire to invest in that market. But what happens? Oops. The desire drives the logic, but I end up in the same place because they're interrelated. It awakens and inspires a desire. That means my innate desire inspires my lower desire to be able to activate and therefore create that logic. So let's see this. Oops, one second, just a moment. This is what's called the soul's desire. There's A, a desire flowing from the soul's innate nature, and be a desire generated by the contemplation. There are both two different types of desire. There's a will. I have a drive. There's an innate drive that I love my child, and therefore what am I going to do? I'm going to find every possible way to express that love and what they need. I'm going to create a logic, what's it? But at the same time, I logically think of ways that I can also do things to express my love to my child. It goes both ways. Or even the other way. I like a certain type of thing. I do a certain type of thing because innately I like it. So I created the logic for it. That's because innately that's what I really want. You have the, what we call, some people want to call it an instinct to something for it. But what we take from here goes even a step further. There's a story told about a of the chassid of the middle Rebbe, the second Chabad Rebbe. His name was Rebikosia Lepler. Rebikosia Lepler, was a, lived in the city, he was called Lepler because he sit, lived in the city of Lapli. And he was a very simple individual. He was a fellow who sold salt. And his knowledge was very limited in the study of Torah. And in his city, he was on the way back from when, when they came from Liuzhna, which was the place of the Altarebis stay. And the Hasidim, as they would travel back, because they would travel by foot, or Sabagi, they would stop in a different town. And wherever there was an enclave of Hasidim, they would review the studies of the Hasidic, the mystical teachings of the Alter Rebbe. And every single time when people would come to review of what they heard by the Alter Rebbe, he felt very bad that he had zero clue of what they were talking about. He was a very simple merchant. He had no clue about these deep esoteric teachings. And it bothered him to a great extent. He prayed. He said a lot of Tehillim. Nothing helped. He decided, you know what, I'm going to go to Lubavitch, and I'm going to talk to the Rebbe about it. And I'm sorry, this was already by the Mittler Rebbe, but the second Chabad Rebbe is going to talk to the Mittler Rebbe about it. And the Mittler Rebbe said the following words, there's nothing that stands in the way of desire. If you really want it, you can do it. He took those words to heart. And he's understood that what does it mean? Nothing nothing stands in the way of desire. That our inner strength, even the strength which is our intellect and our logic and our emotions, can affect our innate desire. And because of that, when you really want something, your talents expand. Mm -hmm. The adrenaline. What do they say in English? There's no... The greatest form of invention is desperation or something like that, right? Later on... In life, as he did that, he decided that he's going to stay in Lubavitch. And he stayed there. He said, I'm staying here until I start understanding what the Mittler Rebbe, the second Chabad Rebbe's Hasidism is all about. He stayed there for a while, about four months. Worked very, very difficult until he was able, to the extent that he was able to contemplate in the Hasidic meditation for over four hours straight. The say that to the extent that the second Chabad Rebbe wrote a book of the satoric teachings of Hasidism, one of the most difficult ones, called the Imre Bina, just for him. Yeah. The, fifth, the, fifth, the fifth Chabad Rebbe then said that Rabbi Kassia Lepler was a living image or was somebody who personified the concept of, you work hard, you'll succeed. What was he saying in this story? You know, when somebody doesn't do well, fails, there's many things that we automatically have, these generic responses. Oh, don't worry, he's a good, guy. Nah, don't worry about it. Or you say, you know what? You failed an A. Try B. Maybe it's not for you. Or you can say, nothing stands in the way of desire. If you really want to do it, you'll do it. How many people do you know that were dyslexic or had other different types of things? I can tell you actually a story about a student I had. When I was, studying in Australia. When I was a teacher in Australia, I had a student of mine. He was 16 years old. He was studying Talmud. Until age 12, he had a very difficult time reading of dyslexia and other different types of uh, uh, learning disabilities. His parents went to the Lamavicherebbe once from Australia to ask a blessing for their child. And the Rebbe's answer was, in English, he told him these words. Even modern-day psychologists agree that with through persistence and perseverance, we could overcome any obstacle. Mm. The kid took himself, worked on himself, and he was in my class in high school. He was learning Talmud from almost zero to, to, to 80, if you want to call it. Today, he's a successful business, a wonderful family, and everything else. Mm-hmm. Why? Because nothing stands in the way of desire. You just got to want it. Like Rabbi Yusuf himself. personified that. He didn't process, okay, I can't do it, so I'll move on. What is the lesson that's telling us? There's Ratzon. Nothing stands in the way. If you genuinely want something, you can accomplish it. It doesn't mean that it's easy. It doesn't mean it's just going to happen and the idea is going to pop into your mind. Any person with any sense of creativity understands that. Sometimes you need to bang your head on the wall more than once. But the bottom line is, if you really genuinely want something, we can do it. That's because we are not fixated. We're not limited. Our mind, our ability, the fact that we have to just want to do it, walk out of that box, and you're able to do it. Mm-hmm. A famous story I always tell my kids, I tell them to them, In Russian by now they know, and I'm about to say it. (laughs) Whenever somebody says, especially the students in class, I can't, but I can't. I can't! So there's a story told about the Valshento. The Valshento was sitting with the students in the shul, and an old peasant comes knocking on the door and says, My wagon is stuck in the mud. Can Come help me. And the students turn around and they say, When remember the last time we walked in a wagon. We don't know what a wagon looks like. I can't! I can't help you. So the Russian peasant turns over to them and says in Russian, You can, you can, you just don't want to. Because if you really wanted to, you can do it as well. Which brings us to concept that we spoke about already earlier in the first class about the garments of our soul. We put ourselves in certain boxes. We put ourselves in certain limitations that we think that we're not able to do something. And the only reason why we don't do it is because bottom line is we probably don't want to do it. Either we're afraid of doing it. There's a certain subconscious within us which is holding back our desire. Because if we truly wanted to do it, we'll do it. If your life was dependent on it, you would get to do it. Just we think, okay, if this doesn't work out, I'll try something else. What we see from here is number one. We control. If you recall, in lesson number one, we control our garments of our soul. We can control the way we thought, speak, and act. We have to be able to utilize all those points to serve God. And today we see that we can even reach that desire. We can reach that level that we can even go beyond our greatest imagination, just by knowing that we have. Just we have to have that desire and want to do that. How do we get to that? So let's go, let's let's look quickly and understand what if these ideas are interesting, they're attractive, but I don't want, them. what if I don't have that desire, I don't have that urge. You wake up in the morning and you just want to turn over on the other side. What if I don't have the desire? So it's all good until now I'm saying I have the desire, but what if I don't have the desire? What if I don't have that drive, that excitement? So, to answer this, we go a little bit back to our SR spheres, to the 10 spheres. And if you recall, we spoke about the seven emotional ones that are on the bottom. But there are three intellectual ones that are on the top. To the right, we have Chachma. Chachma, which means the basic translation, which means wisdom. But comes from the root word Koachma. Koachma means the power of something. The potential. When we talk about thinking, you talk about wisdom. Where does wisdom come from? Wisdom is that potential. is what brings you the ability to have an idea. That spark, that flash, that comes to you, that's Chachma. That idea that comes to you, you have no idea where you're taking it, where you're going to go with it. That insight, that creative way way of thinking, that's Chachma. Bina, as we mentioned, is the basic translation means comprehension, but it gives you the power to be able to unearth it, to be able to comprehend it, to break it up. And then all of a sudden, as we're going to see, Das. Das is what we talk about, the application. What does it mean, Das? I'll give you a story, a very well known analogy. You know, it used to be in the Städetl. The fellow in the Shtetl was not usually not the greatest minds, or thinkers, or knowledge in Jewish law. But they wanted their 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 um, they wanted their children to study Torah. And so what they do? They would hire a malamed, the malamed, which was a teacher. And he would come teach the students of the shtetl. And he was the literate one. All the people in the shtetl, the farmers, the peasants, they were usually illiterate. He was illiterate. He knew how to read, he knew how to write. And he would hopefully teach the children so the next generation wouldn't be so illiterate as the previous generation. It so happened to be that, if any letter of correspondence would come, whether from the government or outside the shtetl, the malamed, his job was to read it and give over the message. The peasant in the shtetl got a letter from uh, where the farmer gets a letter, notifying the farmer of his father's passing. And the malamed is given the letter. If he can read it for the farmer, and he reads it, and he begins to read it, he reads the letter out loud, and he comes to the crucial line that the farmer's father died, The farmer all of a sudden faints. Now the malama keeps on reading the letter. Now the malama didn't cry. The malama didn't faint. The teacher is still reading the letter. Why is the teacher reading the letter like no matter? It doesn't matter. He understands what it says in the letter. He read what it says in the letter. He knows the idea. He read very well. Knows what it says there. It's not like he doesn't know what it means. Why? Because it's not his father. It doesn't apply to him. It doesn't make a difference to him. They say a story. They used to say well, about a rabbi who was teaching his students uh, everything in life, you have to thank God whether it's good or bad. And even on the bad, you have to dance as if it's the good because that's what it says in the Mishnah, the last chapter of the uh, brachas, of, uh, that you have to thank God for the good and the bad equally. So students, we always used to remember as this teacher says, you have to dance no matter what happened, no matter how bad it is. One day, the teacher who was invested in a very big business deal, the deal fell through and all of his property was gone. The students had to break the news to the teacher. They're worried, but they you know the teacher who always studies and he says, no matter what the news is, you gotta dance. So they come over to the teacher and they ask him, What happens if a person loses their parent? He says, Oh, of course, you to be there, you to be happy. What about if they lose all their possessions, nothing left, everything destroyed? What do you have to do? He says, you have to dance, thank Hashem. He said, tell him to start dancing.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: What's the difference? What happened? Why all of a sudden, all of a sudden the teacher fades? What happens? Because now it's it me. Now it applies to me. When it makes it applicable, when you become the person, when you become the story, it's you all of a sudden has a whole different mm-hmm. me when you apply it, when it impacts you, that's what it makes a difference. This is what Das is all about. The basic translation of Das means knowledge. But what Das really means is application. And Das means connection. As we see that when Adam and Eve got married, when they had a relationship, God says, the Torah in the book of Genesis tells us, in chapter 4, and Adam knew Eve. What do you mean he knew Eve? He had a relationship. He was applicable to her. They had cleaved to one another. they Gea had a child. That's what's called knowing, the connection. You can know an idea. I can know many different ideas. The guy lives in outer space and has nothing to do with me. It's all wonderful. But when does it hit home? When it means, when it's applicable to you. You see it all the time. You read the news. You look about, okay, it's in Timbuktu. Who cares? It doesn't matter to me. But all of a sudden, it's on your front step. It makes a difference if your taxes are going to go up or whatever it may be. Or if it's your brother, your sister got. All of a sudden, no, 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 no. This is, not, this is not happening. In theory, yeah, they should do all the other things. But when if I'm the one that has to go fight, that's a different story. And that's when you make a real reckoning. Let's see in Text 16a, page 101. Das consists of a familiar connection that triggers desire. Thus, the Torah uses the term Das to depict the bond as in the verse that says, add a new Eve. What the Torah is telling us over here, that I can learn about a subject. I can know the subject really well. But once I personalize that information, when I personalize and it makes a difference to me, it's not only a foreign subject, all of a sudden, I then have a desire to make a change. Hmm. Think about it. In a country where, I'll just take an extreme case, where does a draft. Are they more pro war or less war? Less. less. Why? Because they know if there's a draft, I gotta go. It's my child on the line. But at the same time, if the war is for the safety of their country, that means that their country's on the line. It's either we're here or we're not here. Even if there's a draft, I have an innate desire to protect my country, to protect my home. Even if it means putting myself in danger. What gives? The ability to our soldier to be able to go on the front lines and say, I'm going to protect the home front. I'm going to go out in war. Put my life in danger. Because it makes a difference to me. It's real to me. If I don't do it today, there's nothing left. There will be nothing for my children. There will be nothing for whatever it may be. And therefore, I'm going to put everything, and I'm going to, because I make it real. It's it to the individual. It's not a foreign idea. It's not a concept. It's not... Some wild in somebody else's imagination. It's reality. And once it becomes reality, it's a whole different story. Mm. This is why, if you look again in the Sirot, what's on the top is Keter, the crown, mm-hmm. the infinite life, the transcendent life. What's right below it is application. I'm generous, I might be all, I have ideas, I have all the wonderful things. But if I want application, I need to be able to be connected to the transcendent light. I can't apply it if I'm stuck in understanding it or if I'm stuck in thinking of creative ideas. I have to be able to apply it and then it becomes a whole new picture. Because, and from that, what do I get to? The first, have a beautiful synthesis. Because when it's applicable, I know that I can't be an extreme. If I want to be able to educate somebody and I'm going to think I have to influence my extremism either the guy who wants my experience or not. But if I want to be able to be collective, I want to bond, I want to be able to make a relationship, I have to all of a sudden recognize a synthesis, a beautiful harmony between the two. This is how we generate at the same time. An innate desire is not something you generate. It's either you have it or not. You can't love somebody else's child You love them for a person. But your child you love differently than another child. And that's because the soul's innate desire, as we talk about, has an innate desire to love God. <coughs> the soul has an innate desire to be connected with God. As we say, Ner Hashem, the candle of God is the soul of a human being. Just like the candle wants to be connected above to the fire that's there, so too every single human soul wants to be connected to God. Every single one of us has an innate desire to be connected and have a relationship with God. And therefore, as we mentioned before, whether sometimes it comes through looking at God's greatness and glory, or sometimes it comes because I feel a void in my heart. But at the end of the day, there's an innate desire, as the Altarebis says, text number 16b, the lower form of desire, which is inferior to the higher, innate desire, can nonetheless trigger the revelation of the higher desire. Both are linked with one another. How do you then do it? And here is the connection. There's an unbelievable video that was going around A guy that was going to the, a very secular Jew that was going to the rave concert that we're all dating, but he got killed. He was like a day before singing this passage to that his soul was pure. He was old and unfortunately killed. But you see a Jew, completely secular. And what was he singing that his soul was pure? Every single Jew, the innate desire of recognizing that our soul is pure how then do we create that desire how do we generate a desire with logic so the first step is you have to know that your soul is pure contemplating god and recognizing that your soul is pure so you can say that's wonderful my soul is pure but what does that have to do with me personalize it what does that have to do find and make it applicable make it yours And then you will trigger a desire that you should have and want something for God. Once you have that triggered desire, you will then uncover that that triggered desire that you now studied about (coughs) was always there. Sometimes you study about something. You learn about something. Mm -hmm. You realize that that's where I really was at the beginning. This is who I really am. I have a desire for something. Why do I have that desire? Because that's what I truly am. And ultimately, it gives you the ability to invest in the relationship that we have with Almighty God. It gives us that chance to be able to connect with that relationship. So, to conclude for today, we started off our class by saying, <coughs> number one, how the angels saying kadosh, 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 holy and holy and holy is because they have that innate desire to reach something that's higher than themselves. They only reach one level, but they're always trying to get something which is higher, that transcendent light of and Saf. We then learn that the present of our own allows the spheros, because it's transcendent, allows the spheros to intermingle, not be stuck in their column, but to actually connect with one another in beautiful harmony. And from there, we come into the our own self, our mirrors into the image. And we, too, have those infinite powers to reach into that transcendent light to be able to connect and to harmonize. And sometimes when we're faced with difficulties towards the road of maybe of our personal success, or anything else in life, we know that nothing stands in the way of desire. That the true way of finding out things that truly inspire us is by Das. Personalize it. Mm. When you personalize it, you will see, is it something that talks to you? Is it something that you want? Is it something that really connects? And that's where Das means connection. Because when you apply something to yourself, you connect to it. You'll see some things, you don't (coughs) connect to Some things you do connect to But one thing we do know, all of us, to connect to god all of us have that innate desire it's just a matter of how much we study recognize and rationalize that connection and appreciate that we have it next week we delve into something even can go into a level higher we go into the world of chaos so i'm mm-hmm. not going to confuse you that
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> any questions Question. sure
0: uh, did, are there any other kind of angels